Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for the love and support. And I truly, truly appreciate it. The podcast is actually growing and I appreciate that. Please continue to spread the word. If you like the episodes we're having, make sure that you are sharing this episode. Please make sure that you are subscribing to the episodes, so that you're rating these episodes and that you're sharing the episodes. Whether you're listening on TuneIn, Breaker, iHeartRadio, Spotify, iTunes, no matter what platform you are listening to this podcast on, please make sure that you're hitting that subscribe button. Rate the episode highly. That way we can be better found through the analytics and share the episode. Share the episode through Facebook, through Twitter, through email. Tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell someone who you think will will benefit from the information that we are giving out. Also, please remember that you can go on over to the Patreon page. Look for Captain Hunter's podcast. For $5 a month, you can help support the program. Now, I am looking to upgrade the equipment. Matter of fact, I bought some new equipment so we can have more than one guest on at a time. So I'm looking forward to doing that. I think that it will enhance the quality of the episodes, particularly on the guests. And so we're trying to upgrade the equipment so I can get better quality for you, particularly on the end of the guest. Also, remember that you get access to show notes, the information, the bios, the picture. You will get links to any articles that the my guests have written. So I think it'll be beneficial towards you concerning the show notes that we're going to be giving out. Also remember that as the podcast grows, we're going to be selling uh, different items. So look forward to those things, T-shirts and things like that. We just got a lot of good things coming up in the future. So I'm looking to get forward to those things now. I need your love and support in order to make these things a reality. Please make sure that you rate, subscribe and share. Please make sure that you support the podcast and all the endeavors that we are trying to do over here at Captain Hunter's Podcast. On a previous episode, we talked with Michael Bell Sr. If you did not listen to the previous episode, please make sure that you listen to that episode. We talked and discussed about the problems that one particular police department had in Wisconsin. Now, this once again, whenever I do episodes like this, let me just put this out there right now. I'm not looking to pick on any particular police department or the problems that they have. Humans make up institutions and humans are flawed. Institutions, therefore, are inherently flawed. I'm not looking to pick on or put down any particular police department. What I am looking to do is make sure that all law enforcement across this country and across the board becomes better and we can realize and understand our mistakes. And that is the purpose and point of this podcast, not to point fingers at any particular police department, but to uplift us all as a community and uplift us all as police departments and make sure that we are all working together for a more perfect society. That is the purpose and point of this podcast, not in putting down police departments. So let me just say that once again, this particular series that we're doing with Michael Bell Sr. Yes, it does focus on the Kenosha Police Department, but I want you to realize what you can do to make your police department better, what police officers can do in order to make the places that they work a little bit better and a little bit more upstanding. So we spoke with Michael Bell Sr. in a previous episode. He talked about the problems that he had with getting justice for his murdered son, Michael Bell Jr. We talked about a little bit about what he was going through and all the things that he has going on. He is continuing to release information. So go over the plea for change on Facebook, the Michael Bell story. Please make sure that you like that page, subscribe to that page, absorb the information that's on that page and see what you can do to help. Reach out to Michael Bell and see how you, if you are a community activist, how you can make everything better and just see about the methods and understand the tenacity that he had in order to make these changes that he wanted to have within his local community, within his police department. Continuing with that, we're now going to speak to one of the investigators who helped Michael Bell Sr. on his crusade for justice. Russell Beckman was a police detective at the time of the killing of Michael Bell Jr., 
He was a police detective in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the same police department. He heard the scuttlebutt. He heard the rumors. He heard the whispering that was going on. And he heard and understood that there was something amiss about this investigation. He decided not to send him the sidelines. He had had enough of enough. So after 29 years, he decided to retire and do what he could to help Michael Bell Sr. on his crusade for justice. Today, we're going to speak with Russell Beckman. So just a little bit about Russell Beckman. He is a retired city of Kenosha police detective with over 31 years of law enforcement experience. During his career with Kenosha Police Department, Beckman earned 75 awards and letters of commendation. Upon his retirement in 2012, Beckman took a second career as a high school social studies and special education teacher. He holds eight professional teaching licenses issued by the Wisconsin Department of Instruction. He teaches at-risk youth in Wisconsin. Beckman graduated from the University of Wisconsin Parkside with summa cum laude honors and a triple major of sociology, history, and political science. He is finishing his master's thesis through Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin. In his spare time, Beckman is an activist who pursues reform of law enforcement practices related to the use of deadly force. He also spends all spring and summer looking forward to the fall football season. He is a season ticket holder for both the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears. However, his heart is with the Packers. Despite the fact that Mr. Beckman has terrible choices for his favorite football teams, I decided to still have him on the podcast. Go Giants. So without further ado, here's the interview with Russell Beckman. Thank you, Mr. Beckman, for being on the podcast and welcome to Captain Hunter's podcast. Well, thank you for allowing me to be on. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, I am too. Before we get into the crux of the of what we want to talk about today, I wanted to kind of go over this big uh, elephant in the room as far as you suing the Chicago Bears. <laughs> so let's <laughs> apparently you are a season ticket holder to both the Chicago Bears as well as the Green Bay Packers, and you wanted to wear your Packer gear to the opening day of at Soldier Field for the Chicago Bears, and they apparently had a conniption fit over that. It's it's a little bit different than that, but you're basically right. I um, as a Bears season ticket holder, I was afforded certain perks. And among them was I could wear, um, I could attend pregame warm-ups on field before certain games. And I would, um, for several years, well, first of all, I've been to every Packer-Bear game since 2003. And I always was a Packer-Bear game. I am a Packer fan, and I believe in flying my Packer colors when I met that game. But one year they said, nope, Russ, you're not going to do it. You're not going to wear your Packer stuff on the field. I took offense to it. I tried to get them to change their mind. Of course, they didn't listen. And I, and they thought my little threat of a federal lawsuit must have been, must have not been serious, but I actually filed one. I filed my one myself. I represented myself. The Bears filed a motion to dismiss. I got through that, which um, is now the prevailing case law in the, in the country regarding First Amendment, r- the rights of First Amendment fans in publicly owned and financed venues. The Soldier Field of Chicago is owned by the Chicago Park District. It's a Chicago public park. And it just was one of those things where it just kind of ticked me off. I don't like people who have power or institutions have power that are arrogant and unresponsive to just out of touch. And so, so we ended up settling a couple months ago. There was no money involved. It was never about money. The Bears eliminated the program that I was involved with, and there was really no sense to keep on fighting. And I, because I prevailed in the Bears' motion to dismiss, that is a prevailing case law in our country, and other cases of similar type will rely on that precedent that I set. So basically, I declared victory, and we're moving on. The man who fought the Chicago Bears and won. Wow. 
I, Thank you. <laughs> well, that's, that's really actually a very interesting story. Particularly, I like the part where you say that you don't like people who have power and, un, and who are unresponsive. Well, that's, that, that's kind of the, the story and mantra of my life to, for good and bad. I, people, people who have power, institutions power, who are unethical, who abuse it. And I just can't stop myself from questioning powerful authority, judiciously questioning powerful authority. Anyone can question authority, but you got to do it judiciously. Right. And, and be willing to, to have the gonads to go for it, right? To go forward with any kind of legal ramifications, implications, legal, judicial, whatever. And I, and I appreciate that. Our, our country was founded on that. Our country was founded in rebellion. I mean, our, um, our founding fathers, they questioned the authority of the King of England. And they were committing treason. And people forget that. In our country, we have, I think we have a moral ethical responsibility to question powerful authority when it is unethical, illegal, or discriminates against people. That's just kind of what I'm about. I really listened in my civics classes when I was in middle school. I still abide by those, those concepts. That's powerful stuff that you're saying. And I think that many people do forget that that, that, that is why this country was founded, how it was founded. And I think that many people tend to forget that. I mean, they want to go along. And that brings us you know, a little bit to our conversation in the first place is the, the corruption that goes on in sometimes, as far as I'm concerned, one police department, but in many police departments uh, where this type of corruption or whether it's city hall, police departments, uh, what have you, uh, this is a problem. This is certainly a problem. And I thank you for being one of those people who actually paid attention to civics class and who is willing to stand up and do the right thing. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. So that brings us to our conversation, right? So just to give a recap, I did a show on the Michael Bell story. Uh, Michael Bell, just for the listeners to be reminded, Michael Bell was a 21-year-old man who was killed in Kenosha, Wisconsin, November 9th, uh, 2004. He was uh, stopped for whatever reason by the Kenosha Police Department. For whatever reason, he was extricated from the car. A uh, fight or some kind of scuffle ensues between Michael Bell Jr. and and the Kenosha police he is then killed and gunned down in his driveway by the Kenosha police department. Now there is a whole big investigation about that. And you were a detective at the time in the Kenosha police department. And you saw a little bit of the scuttlebutt that was going on. You saw the, the shenanigans that were going on, had enough of it. You were about 29 to 30 years into your career and said, this is enough is enough as far as what was going on and decided to do something about it, resigned or retired more likely, retired from the police department and then aided Michael Bell Sr. in getting justice for his son. Is that my summation pretty much correct? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much true. There's a lot more, obviously, there's a lot more complicated, a lot more details than just that. You know, I was not involved directly with the Michael Bell case while I was working. I was like a fly in the wall in the detective bureau watching what was going on and kind of rolled my eyeballs myself. I did not know Michael Bell at that time. I just knew that he was the father of a, of a young man who was killed in a police shooting. And I, and a couple of years after that, after I retired, I didn't resign. I retired with full um, retirement benefits. So in fact, the city of Kenosha, those of you who don't care for public employees, still paying for the health insurance of me and my one remaining child who was under the age. So, yeah, so I retired. A lot of people would portray to me that I ran away and resigned, but I had 30 years in, almost 30 years. So it was time for me to go. I was very disillusioned with my job. I was, and I needed a change, and I needed to move away because since I was investigating them, you can't be one of them and investigate them. 
So I, um, it's a micro ball and I connected and my, the micro ball case has been a big part of my life now for, um, about nine years, about 10 years. And so it's something that I've been working on ever since. So immediately upon your retirement, did you then begin to uh, help or assist Michael Bell? It was before I, re there was always the talk. There was always the institutional rumor mill that there was something about the Bell case that wasn't right. And it was a secret. I wasn't privy to the secret. I, um, but I knew that there was something that was different or wrong about that case because that was a feeling of everyone. And I, in a large part driven by insane curiosity, I wanted to find out what that is. And I, and I realized that I think Michael Bell was a victim of injustice and a victim of this arrogance and this unethical conduct that I just rallied about a couple minutes ago. And I just felt that it was necessary for me and him to form this alliance so we could figure out what happened. Michael Bell just wants the truth. He doesn't, um, you know, and that's important. And every family should want the truth. That's how this whole thing started. And we haven't looked back and we've continued to push ahead. We continue to make strides and gains. And, and I think at some point, I'm very confident at some point in the future, we will, the truth will be proven and acknowledged by the government entities that are involved with this. Okay, so people can go to michaelbell.info and they can uh, read up on the case. There's a number of videos, evidence, things like that. One of the most impressive that I watched was the one Forensically Impossible, Anatomy of a Police Cover-Up. Were you involved with that, with the making of that particular video or any other videos? My role with um, the Bell team is I'm pretty much a researcher. I like to use the word research as opposed to investigator because I, I pour through tens of thousands of pages of documents. I, um, I will... I will help them sit for hours just doing research on the materials that we've obtained. So I did play a part in not an active role. I am portrayed one part of that. A younger me, you'll see me, a theory that I came up with related to the shooting. So you'll see me, but I was not an active developer of that film other than the research that I did in there. Okay. Now, so tell us about the, a little bit about the Kenosha Police Department. Now, you were there for 29 years, 29 plus years, ready to retire. Uh, how big is that department? Oh, gosh. I, it's, Kenosha is the um, third or fourth largest city in Wisconsin. Green Bay and Kenosha are constantly going back and forth. I'm thinking back when I retired, maybe 200 officers. I know there was about 40 detectives, um, maybe 120 patrol officers. Then you have the command staff, so roughly 200 officers. And I worked. I started working there in September of 1983. I was, I was 21 years old. Prior to that, turning 21, I worked for some smaller law enforcement agencies in Wisconsin. So I've been a full-time cop since age 18 to when I retired at age 50. Okay. Unfortunately, and this is not a hit job against the Kenosha Police Department in, in any way, but you know we've got to talk about what we got to got to talk about. There was in the video, forensically impossible. Obviously, this is one particular cover-up. After this whole Michael Bell situation, there were allegations of two more cover-ups. Did any of this corrupt type of behavior have any type of influence upon you as far as, you, number one, instituting your retirement and or just, you know, just enough is enough? That, you know, was it the corruption enough to push you over the edge, essentially? Well, yeah, yes, basically it was. I, um, I couldn't work there in good faith. It was unsafe for me to work. There. I didn't feel safe when I was on certain calls with certain people. Some guy I know fairly well, Frank Serpico, he had experienced the same type of thing. Um, but I guess the point is, is that I was a canary in the coal mine. 
I was the first one to speak up about this. It was back in 2011, 2012, and these incidents you're talking about came to light after that. I certainly wasn't surprised, and they actually, you know, they vindicated me because no one wants to believe when some guy, some employee comes up and says, there's problems here. No one wants to believe that person. That person, that whistleblower or lamplighter, whatever you want to call it, is vilified. He's um, drugged through the mud. You know, you have powerful people that people want to trust say that, hey, everything's fine here, nothing to see here. So, um, and then these things keep on happening because if there's a, a corruption of culture, a corruption of dishonesty that's in an insti- in any type of institution, it becomes a cancer and it's going to rear its head in other manners. There was a case of Officer Bars who, who planted the evidence, an officer who was a real, fairly new officer planted evidence in a homicide case. I guarantee that he just didn't do that on his own. He, um, he was. This was part of the culture that he was. He was working in where that type of behavior was expected. The point is, is that it is extremely difficult to be an ethical person to work in an environment like that. And I feel bad for other officers who are ethical people who are working in corrupt law enforcement agencies. And it's a very difficult thing. And that's what I ended up doing for at least the last several years of my career, where um, I was smart enough to catch on to what was happening. You know, the saying goes that, no, it's just a few bad apples. But the actual full saying is, is that few bad apples spoils the bunch. You know, this is the problem where you get one or two bad actors and they don't get punished. They don't get found out. They don't get exposed. And therefore, like you said, it spreads like a cancer. And this is a problem. I don't know if you heard recently, there was a problem in Florida. One of the, uh, there was a Florida uh, sheriff, I believe, or sheriff's deputy who was arresting people. And this guy's 26 years old. I forget his name off the top of my head. His name was, he was 26 years old and he was caught uh, planting drugs on numerous people. They end up having to throw out over 200 cases. They being the prosecutors down there mm-hmm. and had to throw out 200 cases. And so I did a you know previous episode about that, uh, talking about that. And I'm saying exactly what you're saying as far as this guy is 26 years old, didn't just learn to plant drugs on people. He, yeah. Obviously, he had learned this from someone else, and this is almost expected. And I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm taking the same assumptions that you are, that he somehow somebody taught him this, that it was okay and it was acceptable. Yeah, you're, indo- you're indoctrinated into a um, culture, socialized into a culture when you are hired as a rookie police officer, and you're expected to, to adhere to that, or else you are, just like any other social group, you are cast out, you are ostracized, you are sanctioned for not conforming to the norms of that society. And if you're a police officer, you want to be part of the group. You want to be part of the brotherhood, which is not necessarily a bad thing, except when the brotherhood and being part of it is, becomes an excuse to basically ignore ethics and ignore your legal requirements. When I was a new officer, new patrol officer, October 1983, I was working the night shift, and this captain, I will not say his name, he's deceased, but him and I went for a ride in our squad car. He rode with me. I guess he just wanted to check me out. And it was a beautiful fall night, which we have in Wisconsin. And part of our conversation, which I really struck me, was he talked about if we ever shoot somebody. Russ, if we ever shoot someone... We don't do it right. It's not a good shoot. We make it right before anyone shows up there. Now, this is a captain, and this is, and I sit there and I, oh my God, I I want to get along. Here I am, I'm I'm 
work to be a police officer, so what am I supposed to say? Am I supposed to argue with them? Well, I just sucked it in, and I remember it to this day, and I guess that kind of epitomizes this culture that existed in the former department where I worked. Now, that is that is powerful stuff. And to be a whistleblower or a lamplighter, as you called it, really can mean some, some dangerous situations or mm-hmm. danger for, for the, your life. I mean, how have you ever been threatened or has there been any pushback from former colleagues? Well, first of all, I, I avoid my former colleagues. And I'm there, now, there are some people who are very supportive of me. Um, some of my former coworkers who are decent, wonderful people who I still maintain close ties. I do not say that these guys are my friends because they're still retired law enforcement and I don't want them to be ostracized by having their relationship with me. Now, yeah, there's a lot of push. When, when this was happening, when I was still working there, work was almost intolerable. I, I, yes, I was threatened. My kids were threatened. And, um, but there's nothing that's going to happen to the people who are doing it. It's very, very subtle. It's, it's the sanctions that were imposed on me are not much different than the sanctions that are opposed on street gang members who turn against the, the leadership or the culture of the street gang. Now, I wasn't beaten. Of course, I made, my, I made sure I wasn't vulnerable to that, but these things do happen in law enforcement, and it's very common. I read stories all the time about officers who basically do the right thing and, and, and basically go against the grain and expose these things. Almost in every single case, their term employment is ended through retirement, through a separation agreement. So like you see, what I was doing, I had a dear friend who told me, Russ, you do the same thing now that you did when you were working as a detective. You investigate crimes. But the people you investigating crimes are not against now are powerful people. You can't be one of them. And it's absolutely true. There was a uh, story that I read in the L.A. Times magazine, I believe, about a chief there. Villanueva, I believe is his last name. And apparently the LA County Sheriff's Department is rife with these little small gangs inside their unit. Uh, I don't know if you heard about that story. And I think that that's very telling. And uh, people there had, officers there had the same type of fears that they would not be backed up on calls. You know, Mm -hmm. things would go missing, evidence missing, things like that. It was really, it's in the LA Times. Yeah. and and the, the average person reads about this stuff and they think, that can't be the case. That guy, this guy's crazy. This, this. No, it's not. It happens. It's real. And it, um, but it normally doesn't affect the so-called good people in society. It is um, the people who are adversely affected by this corruption, this lying, this um, concealment of evidence, are people of the lower economic statuses. And they're the ones who have the least power. So the people who are sitting in suburbia in their nice house with their two cars and their, their dog and their cat and their wife, they're not affected by this. And this is the thing. Michael Bell was affected by this. I just described Michael Bell. And, he, and he's a guy who, God, I admire him so much for the tenacity and his resilience to keep on, to keep on pushing this and pushing this. So we're hoping that good's going to come from this. And that's why I, this is an important part of my life. There's a, a saying that I heard fairly recently, and I've been saying it a lot, is that when they come for me in the morning, they will come for you in the evening. Now, African-Americans have been complaining about this type of thing for centuries, literally. And then it comes to, as you said, to a, a person who's an upstanding citizen, Michael Bell Sr., who is a former Air Force colonel, and he can't believe it. And during our interview, he said that he was ignorant. He said he was an ignorant white guy 
who was ignorant about what was going on. And so I think that you, what you're saying is, is true and accurate, that many people just don't believe the lower classes, the minority classes, the poorer people about what's happening. This is very disconcerting to me. I mean, I was I was a police captain, obviously. I want to say, I want to brag in my department, we did not have these particular problems, but I do know that these particular problems exist. And it's, it's horrible that people have to go through that. Unfortunately, these cries have fallen on deaf ears. And then one day it happens to a, to a colonel in the Air Force. And, they, and then everybody kind of perks up and says, OK, and this and this guy, Michael Bell Sr., is able to get justice for his son, Michael Bell Jr., able to get laws passed because people were willing to listen to him. And this is a frustration that the minority community has, that no one is listening to us. And I get it. In fact, um, look at the civil history of the civil rights movement. I consider the civil rights movement, it's, if you want to see it starting after World War II, it's continuing today. And our work is part of that movement. The early 60s, when President Kennedy was the president, and um, you had these demonstrations and these protests at the South, it wasn't until the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, and all these big papers in North started printing photos of the brutality in Birmingham and Selma that kind of tugged at the conscience of ignorant white people in the North. And that finally caused enough pressure for the Civil Rights Acts to be passed. This is a history of our country where people have to really have to face the truth in order to get action done. And now, and I consider what we're doing to be in the same vein as the Civil Rights Movement is just a continuation of it. And I get it. It frustrates me also. So let's get back to the Michael Bell case. Now, the officer in that particular case had was claiming that his gun was being taken or that the that Michael Bell Jr. had his hand on his gun. Therefore, the lieutenant gave the order to, to shoot him. Were you the investigator who determined that it was not uh, Michael Bell Jr.'s hand that was on his gun, but that it was the rearview mirror? Is that you? Oh. Yeah, that's me. Um, and that's Officer Strasbaugh. I, I knew him. I didn't know him while I was his friend, but I worked with him and I felt very highly of him. And for him to hysterically cry that he's got my gun, he's got my gun. Well, something had Strasbaugh's gun. And if it wasn't Michael Bell, it was had to be the car mirror. And this is something that I was able to figure out because I carried a gun every day for 30 years in my job. And your gun gets caught on things. And when it gets caught on something, it feels like you're being disarmed. It is, you know, you could be perfectly calm, your gun gets caught on something, and all this instant terror that someone's trying to disarm you for a second or two until you realize what happened. And I they believe that they knew it, and they concealed it, because I was able to figure it out. Now, Mike's, um, it was not figured out until after Mike went to trial, or I think his case was settled, but to me, that's what I believe happened, and part of our work is to get the government or the, the city of Kenosha to acknowledge, yes, that's in fact what happened. What is your theory that behind them, not them, the government, the prosecutors, the uh, city officials not wanting to acknowledge uh, that it that they made a mistake and or that it could have been the car mirror that was uh, attached to his gun? When I worked there, it was the default position that if there's a problem, if there's a mistake, if there's some sort of screw up, we don't come clean about it. We make up a lie to deal with. God, it's just wow. how it was. And, um, and I was aware that I was armed with this information. And so it just was easier to say, okay, wait, this is a big screw up. The gun getting caught in the car mirror, we have this young man dead. Well, let's just tweak a couple things. You know, we'll, we'll lie to make the case a little bit stronger. We'll lie to 
to basically protect ourselves. And I am convinced that that is exactly what happened in the Bell case. And, and, but that's also consistent with the culture that I worked in for um, over 29 years. That's, that's really horrible to hear. It's my theory that the culture is not the result of simple bad police administration, right? This doesn't come from chiefs. But yeah. this is uh, sanctioned by the city officials, by the prosecutor. Right. In one particular case that you mentioned where the guy was planting evidence, I believe the prosecutor was in on it and covered up the fact that this evidence was was manufactured. And so this comes you know, from the prosecutor. Go ahead, please. Go ahead, please. You know, you know Captain, if, we, if, we, if you had a whole week, a uh, whole couple months of podcasts, boy, could I tell you stories that would make it interesting. But I will say this. It becomes the way things are, the expected behavior, and that comes from the top. The leader of any institution determines the culture of that institution. That's in private industry, government, and in private affairs. I mean, the, the pastor, the leader of a church, determines the culture of that church. And what happens is if you have unethical leaders who are willing to basically, this is how they run, think, of course, the workers are going to conform to that. The people in that society are going to conform to the to the basically the norms of that institution. This what I'm going to say I've written about in the past. It's in documents that I wrote. I mean, eight nine years ago, I brought my issues with the dishonesty, the culture of dishonesty at the Coalition Police Department. I went and I met with the chief of police one on one on January first, two thousand nine, and I wanted to talk to him about these problems. I wanted them to be solved because I knew where I was heading. I was heading to go outside the organization. I was heading to make complaints with other governmental agencies. When I talked about this lying, this culture of lying to the police department, the chief looked at me and told me that, um, Russ, some degree of lying is acceptable. Some officers earn the right to lie. Wow. At that, at that moment... I knew that my career with the Commercial Police Department was over because I couldn't work like that, and I had made the decision that I was going to move forward. And I, I could still be working there if I wanted to be. I just had to just basically just keep my mouth shut, but then I would be a doormat. I couldn't live with myself. I have a great life right now, and I am so incredibly happy with my life because I made the decision to free myself from those shackles and, um, and to come clean with what was going on. Now, I paid a price for it, but you know something? I'm glad I paid that price because my life is so good right now. But that's the culture that comes from the top. And those, that's a stunning statement that the chief of police told me, but it just was epitomizes the culture there. That's really terrible to hear. I'm really sorry to, to hear that. That's, I, I'm actually kind of floored at that. I was floored, too. It's just... Um, I mean, it's like you, you want to do... I mean, a lot of people go into law enforcement you know, you know, for the absolute right reasons. It's, a, it's an honorable job, and, but, to think, but there's rules to it. I mean, if we don't have these rules to restrain the powers of law enforcement, guess what? We're just like North Korea, and I don't think we want to be that way. And you're absolutely right. I don't think we want to be that way either, and that's a good way of looking at it. If we, if, if we look at these other places, these other countries, North Korea, the Soviet Union, you name the country, and we know how their police are acting. 
and it become and we're doing the same thing. I can remember sitting in a class uh, when I was going back for my degree. I, I remember sitting in a, I think it was a history class, and the instructor was going on about the about these other countries, same like we're doing, talking about you know the the uh, re- repression that was going on in Russia. Where I live is in uh, the city of Waterbury in Connecticut, and there's a large Albanian population there. And so uh, the, the Albanian people, uh, and, and the reason that the teacher was going on about that, because he was talking about the Albanian people and where they come from and how the police treated the Albanian people. She's going on about how, how negatively it was and their interactions. And they come here and they're afraid of the police and this, that, and the other. And I'm sitting there thinking, don't you realize that the police have done the same thing to my, to my community? <laughs> you know, so some people are just really just don't get it. I they, certainly they appreciate don't. it. And, and it's unfortunate. It really is. I sat there for, um, yeah, a long time, and I saw a lot of stuff. Like I said, we could talk. Captain, you and I could literally talk for days about things and trade stories. But um, it is a problem, and I think that we are not coming to grips with it in law enforcement. And you're seeing the results of it now because the problem in law enforcement that we see on TV and with these the cell phone videos, they're not new. They've been there all the time. It's just that now you know, regular people have the ability because everyone has a camera to record things when they have it. So you're, I, I assume that then you're certainly in favor of, of cell phone videos, uh, b- body-worn cameras by the officers, things like that. Well, yeah, I would. Um, I, I think that's a big thing. I remember before Rodney King being a patrol officer, before Rodney King, and Rodney King didn't surprise me, I decided that I was always going to act in a manner that I assumed that I was being videotaped all the time. And it wasn't hard for me to act ethically to do the right thing, but that type of thing keeps people in line. It's a, it's, a, it's a check in the power of law enforcement. I believe it's very important, and it modifies behavior. Not that I, w- I wasn't prone to being brutal or violent or uh, stupid or whatever, but I still had that attitude that I was always going to be on the up and narrow about um, how I interact with citizens because I assumed I was always being videotaped. Well, that's good that you have that that attitude. I can remember b- before I got promoted to sergeant, this is probably like 97, 98 or so. I can remember we pulled over a car. So it was myself and a partner. And as we're walking up to the window, uh, my partner says, oh, this guy's got a camera in the back seat," And I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> so? I mean, because I didn't have the, I didn't have the mindset that I was we were going to do anything illegal, you know? So, yeah. what, you know, what are you telling me that for? Yeah, well, you know, for people like you and I, that's um, it's not a problem. But for people who are prone to being brutal, it's a problem. Right. Do you ever miss law enforcement? Yeah, I do miss it from the standpoint that I love to conduct in-depth, complex investigations. But I, I'm doing that now. <laughs> I'm just not doing it in the role of a law enforcement officer. So I, I miss the fact that I get to discover the truth about when when people in power want to conceal things and you know i just didn't miss the investigative aspect of it but i get plenty of that now with the bell case some of the other cases some of the other work that i do so i don't want to say i miss it but i do like that part of the job okay so are you you're still doing some investigative work for for the bell case oh yeah it's, it's still going in fact um after we're done talking, I'm going to be camped at my in my computer, and I'm, I have some writing to do. It's not done. We're still working on things. In fact, in a some point in the next several weeks, um, we're going to be releasing our findings, and I'm working on those findings. And I think people are going to be stunned 
as to what we find, what we have found, and what we can prove through irrefutable and overwhelming evidence. So yes, this story is not done, this case is not done. We have spent years getting records, working to get records. We finally got records several months ago that really and we were able to put things together and people are going to be stunned with what we come up with or what we have come up with. It's just a matter of us documenting it and heavily documenting it. So it's not just our opinion. So, yeah, but there's big news to come in the Bell case. Is there any resistance to it? I mean, have you have been having any problem as far as getting the documents or anything like that? Oh, yeah. I think Mike Bell has his attorneys hired, like, or has filed 38-some public records requests. We haven't gotten records on a lot of those. We've been trying for three years to get certain records that the city said didn't exist. They did not exist, but we ended up getting some of them. We've only gotten a, t- a fraction of the records that we know that exist, but yet we still have turned those records into something that is going to be pretty stunning when it comes out in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's a, it's a big problem that um, the city council is still fighting very hard to conceal the truth. And often, you know, in bureaucracies, the truth comes out in the records and the documents. One would have to wonder what they have to lose at this point. I mean, they've already settled the case. They've given Michael Bell Sr., um, you know, a settlement of about $2 million, which in my estimation is not enough, but whatever. So what are they even hiding any, anymore for? Just their just their namesake? Just their embarrassment? I mean, what are they what are they even doing now? All above, there's some powerful people that are connected to, um, to who, who are aware of this information, who are the keepers of the secret, the keepers of the, of the documents. Some of them have political careers, and plus it becomes, when you're, um, the government has unlimited resources, and they're spending taxpayer dollars to protect this secret from coming out, and they're quite aggressive about it, but we are just as determined, we are basically conducting a criminal investigation of public officials, that this investigation is being conducted by private citizens who have no subpoena powers. And yet we are making progress and we are going to publish very soon some very stunning um, findings. So, um, and it's sad that the public has to do this. I mean, and I'm not saying it's like this all over Wisconsin, but this happens in other places. I mean, Michael Bell is to a lesser part of your contact by people all over the country who complain about similar type things. Um, the thing is, Michael Bell has the, the, the resources the tenacity, and um, he has a supportive team who are willing to work hard, and a lot of intellectual resources have been put into this, and um, a lot of people don't have those resources, both financial and intellectual, to get this done. What is it that you all are expecting to come as a result of the investigation? You, you, as you said, you're conducting a criminal investigation. Are you hoping for arrests? Are you hoping for people to resign? What is it you're, well, you're wanting? Well, I think um, I can't I know Michael Bell well enough. I'm not going to pretend to speak for him, but I know me and him would just be very happy if the truth would come out and be acknowledged. Because there has to be some acknowledgement. There has to be, because this will cause reform and other law enforcement agencies who think about doing the same thing. When you have some unethical police leader who's thinking about doing something, he or she needs to be sitting in a seminar having this case being spoken of as a case where the government screwed up and people made the wrong decision. Because these things, 
I'm sure when this, um, you know, 2004, when this scheme was put together, no one in their wildest imagination thought that it would get to the point that it is now. And so um, what happens is a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine years ago, told me that a crisis is a shortcut to the future. Those are very wise, wise words. The crisis of what's going to happen, the crisis of public confidence that's going to come out um, about the Bell case will be a shortcut to the future in Wisconsin and in other places throughout the country. Wow. You have a you have this these documents that are going to be released in a few weeks of so some type of full report. Uh, we will certainly be looking forward to that, and that's what you're doing. I assume in your in your spare time, in your full time, you're now a teacher. Yeah, I'm, I'm a teacher. I always wanted to be a teacher throughout my whole life, and when I retired at age fifty, age fifty is way too young to retire to nothing, and I have to have a purpose and a mission. I decided I was going to be a teacher, and I wanted to teach at risk students. Because it was so easy to put young people in prison when I was a police officer. Simply way too easy. And I always thought that if we could put the resources on the front end of that, we could keep young people out of prison. And that's a hard job. And I want the challenge of that hard job. So that's what I do. So I'm not sure if you jumped out of the frying pan with law enforcement and into the fire with dealing with at-risk youth. I don't know which one I would rather do, quite honestly. Uh, face a guy with a gun oh. or face uh, the at-risk youth. But I, but, it, but you're absolutely right, and I commend you on that. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Well, it, thank you. Yes. I, love my, I love my job. I love going to work every day. Like I said, I have a great life, and, um, and I just feel like I'm really making a difference in the world. If I do my job well, that's the thing. If I do my job well, I will save the taxpayers untold millions of dollars in future incarceration costs due to lessening recidivism. Yes. So um, I feel like I have doing a very important job that society needs good people to do. You, you definitely are. Thank you for that. You're absolutely right. Chil- children uh, need help. They need support. They need love. Um, and unfortunately, many of them are lost along the way. And if you can be one of those people that help to guide them towards the right path in life as a teacher, then go for it. I, I myself, you know, I, I, I obviously retired from law enforcement. I'm actually doing what I can. I'm going to the public schools right now and teach chess a couple times a week. That program is going to be starting up. So I do believe that, you know, it takes some people who have some type of compassion to get these kids on the right path. Congratulations. You know, yeah, Cap- Captain, thank you. Just on the um, chess is a very valuable game to use with at-risk kids because um, some young person's having a really bad day and they feel like they're not in control, put a chess board in front of them, play chess with them because they have control. Right. And it allows them to wind down. It's a very effective, um, effective tool for a teacher. So it's kind of cool to hear you say that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So we look forward to uh, these reports coming out. Thank you for what you've done as far as your past in law enforcement. Thank you for what you're doing for the Michael Bell case and helping to expose, you know, kind of this dark underbelly of law enforcement that people particularly minorities and uh, poor people have been complaining about. Thank you for standing up for the little guys. Thank you for standing up for, against the Chicago bears. <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> and thank you for, you know, standing up and, and becoming a teacher. It's your, your life is certainly an inspiration. I hope that more people will take that attitude and, and listen to uh, their middle school civics classes and, be, and become those upstanding citizens that we all need. Thank you so much, Russell Beckman. Thank you very much, Captain Hunter. It was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, the pleasure was all mine. Okay, we'll talk to you again. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, bye.
Thank you so much to Russell Beckman, former detective from the Kenosha, Wisconsin Police Department. Thank you for your service. Thank you for being an upstanding citizen for one of those people who, as I mentioned, paid attention in civics class, became a police officer, had problems and issues with what he was told and taught. And then when he finally had enough, stepped up, retired, and then helped to right a wrong and bring some, some justice to the Michael Bell situation. And now he's obviously a teacher trying to impact the lives of his students. So thank you so much to him for being on the podcast and for his life. So that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. I ho- truly hope you guys learned something today. Make sure that you go to michaelbellinfo.com, michaelbellinfo.com. Go to the Facebook page, Plea for Change, the shooting of Michael Bell, and look up that information, like the page, stay tuned, and follow up with what uh, the Bell family and Russell Beckman have going on. So until next time, make sure that you hit me up in the email, hunterpoliceconsulting at gmail.com, the Twitter page, CPTL Hunter, Instagram, CPTL Hunter, YouTube, Captain L Hunter, hunterpolicetraining.com is the website. Please make sure that you subscribe, rate, and share this episode. Also make sure that you go over to the Patreon page. Please become a member patreon members that you can get these show notes and get all the information i got more items that we're going to be giving out as the show grows and goes on so just stay tuned for all that we are looking to do some more things have multiple guests on just some other things we're trying to do so uh, just stay tuned that's it for now take care much love and peace <music>